24 through 31. But to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans, and God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. God has united you with Christ Jesus. For our benefit, God made him to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy, and he freed us from sin. Therefore, as the scriptures say, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. If you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. Good advice. Well, we just started last week a brand new series in the book of 1 Corinthians. So if you brought your Bible with you, then turn to 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in the first chapter, the latter half of the first chapter. Brother Lynn started it last week, and I get the honor of continuing it this week and next. I, I really, he uh, caught me off guard last week when he told you in advance of his plan to take a vacation he said, this week I'm starting in 1 Corinthians, and next week and the week following, Brother Aaron is going to be preaching, and I thought, oh boy, there goes our attendance. So, so th thank you for showing up this morning. I, I, that was a pleasant surprise, and I really appreciate it. Honestly, I do. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 is where, where we're going to be beginning, beginning this morning. I, I had uh, Shelly grab me a, a water. Uh, but the truth is, just, just in case my throat gets dry, but the truth is, in the spirit of full transparency, I would much rather have a Diet Coke from McDonald's up here. I, I really don't love water. I don't even really like water. You might say, well, why don't you like water? Your body is 70% water. Don't you know that? Yeah, well, that's exactly the percent of my body that I don't like, 70% of my body. So... I mean, I don't want to, I, I didn't bring a Diet Coke up here mostly because I uh, finished it already in class, but uh, also because I didn't want to alarm any health Nazis, oh, I mean health nuts, excuse me, health nuts. Everybody has favorites. My favorite is a Diet Coke from McDonald's for some weird reason, uh, but you have favorites too. You might have a favorite drink like I do or a favorite food or a favorite restaurant. Almost everybody has a favorite color. You ask anybody what's your favorite color or maybe a favorite sports ball team. Maybe you have a favorite vacation spot or a season of the year or even a favorite person. Look at that person next to you and say, you're my favorite. Louder, I can't hear you. Okay. Here is something that is universally, unequivocally true of every single favorite you have. Are you ready? This is going to blow your mind. It's kind of obvious. But it's true of every favorite that you have here it is. Every favorite, and I mean everyone without exception, is something or someone or somewhere that you have already experienced. Right? I mean, think about it. Nobody has ever said, camping is my favorite way to relax until after they've gone camping. That just doesn't make sense. Who would say that? Nobody has ever said, LeBron James is my favorite sports ball player, unless they've seen LeBron play. 
No one has ever seen McDonald's, ever said, McDonald's is my favorite restaurant. <laughs> that was the end. And here's another truth about your favorites, and this is also kind of obvious. You enjoy them. Your favorites, obviously, are not something that you dislike or don't enjoy. No one has a favorite that they don't like, and we all like our favorites for different reasons. Maybe you have a favorite show or a favorite movie, and maybe you've seen it a dozen times, but it still makes you feel good for whatever reason. When I was growing up, my favorite was The Princess Bride. Probably a lot of you have, have seen that, and I was just a few weeks ago my oldest daughter got married you have no idea how much self-restraint it took for me not to stand there as the efficient and say marriage to love is what brings us together today <laughs> most people have a favorite meal fellas especially, and your, your ladies learn that early on, I'm sure, because that is the way to a man's heart, right? Most, most of you have a favorite meal. Now, mine is fish sticks with beanie weenies and, and, or beans and franks if you're hoity-toity with tater tots and shells and cheese. And, and no, that's not the same as macaroni and cheese. It's completely different. Fish sticks with beanie weenies, tater tots, and shells and cheese. I love it. Not because it's particularly delicious. I love it in large part because it takes me back to a time in my life before taxes and mortgages and retirement planning. And for me, it is what most people would call comfort food right? You know what I'm talking about. You have, you have comfort food as well. I like it for the same reason that you ladies probably have a favorite pair of jeans. It makes you feel good about yourself when you put them on. Now, this season that we're all going through right now is anything but comfortable. Can we all agree on that? This season that we're in is anything but comfortable. For months, we have been quarantined, cut off from acquaintances, and sequestered from society. Some of you have battled illness, and so you've done the responsible thing, and you've pulled away from friends. Some of you have been furloughed or even lost your jobs, not to another person, but to a virus of all things. Life is now strange and uncomfortable, and it looks like it's going to stay that way for a while longer. And all this discomfort has a way of polarizing people. I mean, you, you don't have to look any further than, than Facebook to see that. Or better yet, don't look at Facebook. You'll Thank you for that. Look at Facebook, or don't, and you'll find every opinion on every subject you could possibly imagine. Every issue. Regardless of the position you take, you won't have to search long or hard to find plenty of people to support whatever position you believe. Just pick pick a side and you'll also find a mountain of people who are way smarter than you and only too happy to spread their brilliance and correct your foolishness am i right yeah you have an opinion about covid wrong you have a political leaning how dare you you have a religious conviction don't even think about it now compared to the dangers faced by generations before us 
or the threats endured by other people around the globe, even today, what we face here in the Bible Belt of America is hardly persecution. But if you're brave enough to have beliefs, and if you're bold enough to share them with other people, then you're bound to make a lot of people uncomfortable, and you might even make a few people angry. So what are we supposed to do? Are we really supposed to live in a world with no convictions? I mean, think about it. Wouldn't the resolution to have no convictions itself be a conviction? So how would that even work? Well, believe it or not, this isn't a new dilemma. People have been struggling with this issue since, I don't know, the invention of convictions. For thousands of years at least. In fact, about 2,000 years ago, a missionary named Paul wrote a letter to people in the city of Corinth, Greece. And in that letter, he dealt exactly with this issue. And it's what we're going to talk about this morning. But before we look at what he said, let's get a little bit of background. Now, Paul wasn't always Paul. He started life as, some of you know it, if you do, shout it out. He started life as, that's right. Now, Saul was a fierce opponent of people who embraced the way. Did you know that's what? Christianity was called before the label Christian was invented. It was called the way. And Saul was a fierce opponent of the way. Saul worked as a bounty hunter of sorts for the Jewish religious elite, identifying and imprisoning Jesus followers until Saul himself had a come-to-Jesus encounter on his own on the road to uh, the ancient city of Damascus. By the way, I saw this on a church sign. Uh, considering what we're all going through, this current worldwide COVID crisis, I think Saul had the right idea. I think we all need Jesus to set us on the road to Damascus. I promise that's my last dad joke. Okay, so after Saul had this face-to-face encounter with Jesus, his life was dramatically and instantaneously changed. And he started going by Paul, a new name, for a new life. He traveled the Mediterranean, starting churches and writing letters, and some of these letters, not all of them, but some of these letters were eventually included in the New Testament of our Bible, what we call the New Testament, the latter third or so. Now, the first letter to the believers at the city of Corinth, or 1 Corinthians for short, what we're looking at this morning, was written to early Jesus followers in the city of, I've already said it, Corinth. Now, this is a blown-up view of uh, the part of the Mediterranean where Corinth was located. And you can see Corinth is right here. Everything in blue is water. These are land masses. Corinth is right here. And what you might be able to tell from the screen, can we get a close-up of this maybe from one of the cameras? What you might be able to tell is that there's, this is a gulf, gulf of Corinth right here. And this is also a gulf on the other side. And the landmass here between Achaia and Peloponnesus narrows to just a few miles. And so rather as sailing vessels would sail around uh, the Peloponnesian Peninsula down here, this was dangerous to get out in the open Mediterranean waters, prone to storms and big waves. And so as if sailors wanted to go from the Adriatic Sea over here to, say, the Aegean Sea, or they just wanted to, to get a shortcut, they'd go through the Gulf of Corinth, and they would pay, get this, they would pay to have their ships towed across land 
from the Gulf of Corinth to this Gulf over here where they would keep going. And even though it would take a couple of days for that to happen, it was a big time saver, and more importantly, it, it saved them uh, some real dangers out in the open ocean. So Corinth, by the time Paul is writing to it, is a, a metropolis. It's a major port city where a lot of a lot of trading takes place, and there are people from all over the Mediterranean world, all over the Roman Empire there. What I'm trying to say is that it was a place of immense diversity, not unlike our country today, not unlike the place where we live. Corinth was a place of enormous diversity because of where it was established, and those differences inevitably clashed because wherever you have different people trying to occupy the same space, you're going to have differences. You're going to have conflict. And so Paul was inspired by the Spirit to write to these Corinthian believers about how to deal with conflict, which is what we're looking at this morning, how to thrive in this world without losing your mind. So Paul gave them three keys. We're going to start, we're going to jump right into this with key number one. I think this is one of the uh, fill-in-the-blanks. Get comfortable with conflict. Just get used to it. Conflict is a part of life. It is unavoidable. In spite of our society's trend, modern trend toward political correctness, you just can't avoid conflict. So you can fight it, you can bristle up against it, and live a life full of frustration, or you can just get comfortable with the fact that conflict is a way of life. Where did Paul say that? Well, let's take a look at what he wrote. This is verse 18, the, be the beginning of what we're looking at this morning. The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. I mean, do you see the conflict there? It's foolish. What you believe about, Jesus, about anything is foolish to somebody else. Look at down in verse 22. It's foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven, and it's foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. Now, wait a minute. I thought the Jews were the good guys. Well, the message of the cross is foolish to them, wrote Paul. It's foolish to them, and it's also foolish to the Greeks, the, the non-Jews, who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, psh, ridiculous. The Jews are offended, and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. So the Jews were the religious people, and the Greeks were the non-religious or irreligious people, so I've just taken the liberty of superimposing those terms in that verse so we could read it again and understand what Paul is trying to communicate. It's foolish to the religious, this message of the cross, who ask for signs from heaven. Oh yeah, show me a sign and I'll believe. People said that all the time, even to Jesus. Show me a sign and I'll believe. And it's foolish to the irreligious, this message of the cross, who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the religious are offended and the irreligious say it's all nonsense. Well, if you can't please the religious people and you can't please the irreligious people, it's like you can't, you can please none of the people none of the time. Going on, being religious is about us or them. Following Jesus is about us for them. Feel free to tweet that. Being religious is about us or them. It's about saying, I'm right, you're wrong. But following Jesus is about us for them. Jesus came, Jesus served for a very specific purpose. It was to save the world. 
<laughs> he came because the Father sent him out of love, not malice. Right? The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. Going back to verse 18. But we who are being saved know it is the power of God. Now let me, let me point out something to you in this verse right here because this is important. These two phrases in this verse identify two different groups of people. Those who are headed for destruction and we who are being saved. It's easy, it's easy to be against somebody. It's easy to say, this is what we believe and everybody who doesn't believe it is wrong. That's easy. It's hard to be for people. It's hard to be genuinely concerned about someone else's well-being when, when maybe they don't believe the same way that you do. You don't have to say that they're right, but you don't have to condemn them before God does. Let's look at these two phrases here. The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for. They haven't already gotten there. They're on their way. By the way, but we who are being, we haven't arrived either. You see that? These two groups, the difference isn't in their condition. They're both on a journey. They're both in process. The difference is their direction. The difference is where they're headed. You and I are far more alike the people outside this building than we would like to believe. Our differences are far fewer than we would like to believe. We're all on a journey. The difference is the direction that we're going. We haven't arrived yet, and neither have they. Neither those who are headed for, nor we who are being, have arrived. We're all traveling through this world together. By the way, this world that we're traveling through together, Jesus in John 16 said, I've told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. This world in which we're living, Jesus said that it's possible in this world for you and I to have, what's that say right there? What's it say? Peace. It's possible for you and I in this world to have peace. You know how you're not going to have peace? By living on Facebook. Okay? You are not going to have peace that way. Living on Twitter. Twitter is, was invented for arguments. You're not going to have peace that way. You're not going to have peace by arguing with every person who has a differing opinion than you. Well, how are we supposed to convince them then? Well, we'll get to that. But for now, just take this first point that Paul is trying to teach us and let it soak in. Get comfortable with conflict. By the way, this world that Jesus said he's overcome, let's look at John 3.16. This is how God loved the world. This place in which you and I live that is so uncomfortable now, God loved it, and he loves it still. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge or condemn the world. If God's son, Jesus, was not sent into the world to judge and condemn the world, then don't you do it. He was sent to save the world. 
And that's our mandate as well, to do everything we can to save the world. If we must fight, if we must fight, then let it be on our knees and let it be for each other, for our fellow travelers in this world. For we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies. We do have an enemy, but we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies. We're fighting against evil rulers and authorities in the unseen, look, there's that word again, world. Against mighty powers in this dark world and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. That was Paul, the same guy who wrote this letter that we're studying this morning. We're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies. This is a spiritual battle and we fight it on our knees. So get comfortable with conflict, but war against the real enemy. So three keys. The first one was what? Remind me. Oh, that wasn't everybody. What was the first one? That's right. Get comfortable with conflict. And the second one is let God use your uns. Let God use your uns what's an un i know i get some curious looks from you but you'll remember this right let god use your uns let's look back at what what paul wrote again in uh chapter one of first corinthians remember dear brothers and sisters that few of you you brothers and sisters few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when god called you instead god chose things the world considers foolish things that are powerless, things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. Can I just highlight a few of those things that Paul says you and I are? Can I just highlight those for you? Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish. Uh, that's you and me, folks. Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is calling us foolish. Things that are powerless. Ouch, Paul, that hurts. Things despised? Come on be nice despised by the world things counted as nothing at all yikes that'll make you feel good about yourself won't it that's okay you're in great company let me tell you about a little shepherd boy god used an untrained teenaged shepherd an untrained teenaged shepherd to defeat a highly trained professional killer and save an entire nation from slavery. You know his name? What was his name? David. That's right. David had no special skill. He was untrained. In fact, the king tried to outfit him. You know the story. The king tried to outfit him with his armor. David said, I can't wear this. I can't move around in this stuff. Too big and heavy for me. So he went out there literally with nothing except God. And God used that. God used his nothing. God used his un. How about this guy, David replied to the, oh, this is still David. David replied to the Philistine, you come to me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord our, of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. That's all he needed. All he needed was God. Or, or how about uh, this kid? We don't even know his name, but Jesus used an unnamed boy to show his unprepared followers, his disciples, what he could do with even what they didn't have. You know what story I'm talking about? This is, that's right, the feeding of the 5,000. You know, an interesting fact about that miracle, aside from the resurrection, that's the only miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels because it's that significant. 
It's that significant. And the person, the main, one of the main characters in that story, we don't even know his name. He's just a little kid. And what he, all that he had, that little bit that he had, Jesus used that to do a miracle that is recorded in every gospel. There's a young boy here, said one of the disciples, with five barley loaves and two fish. But what good is that to feed this huge crowd? Jesus said, I'll show you what good that is. That's exactly what I wanted. I wanted you just to take the little bit. I knew, he, he knew the answer to the question when he asked it. What do you got? Well, we got this little bit, but it's not enough. It's perfect. God used a thorn in the flesh. We don't exactly know what that is. That's what Paul called it, a thorn in the flesh. Whatever it was, it was obviously something very uncomfortable and unpleasant. I mean, that doesn't sound, yesterday I went and played um, disc golf with my son and my son-in-law, my two sons. That's weird, I hadn't thought about that before, my two sons. And I had to stop about every 15 minutes because I was wearing these, these ankle socks and I'd keep getting grass and stuff in my shoes and it was so uncomfortable I couldn't walk around in that. So, and that's nothing. Paul was afflicted with something, we don't know what, something very uncomfortable and unpleasant but it served a purpose to teach Paul grace and humility. Three different times, this is Paul writing, I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. Anybody in here weak? This guy is. The guy with the thumbs? This guy. He's weak. That's great. That's right where God wants you. Because God can use that. He can use your un, whatever that is. So let's go back to our list three keys to thriving in this world without losing your mind. The first one was, what? Remind me. Very good. That's what I heard. And the second one was, okay, that was a little bit better. Good job. Let God use your uns. The third and last one is, look for truth and learn to trust. Look for truth. That's good. We need to look for truth. Truth is important. Those who would worship God must worship Him in spirit and in truth. But without faith, it's impossible to be saved. Learn to trust. Let's go back to our, our, uh, our text for the day in 1 Corinthians. Look at what Paul wrote in chapter 2. When I, again, this is Paul, am among mature believers, I do speak with words of wisdom, but not the kind of wisdom that belongs to this world. No, the wisdom we speak of is the mystery of God, His plan that was previously hidden. People who aren't spiritual can't receive these truths from God's Spirit. It all sounds foolish to them, and they can't understand it, for only those who are spiritual can understand what the Spirit means. The message of the cross is foolish, jumping back to verse 18, to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it's the very power of God. Did you see that phrase down at the end, the last verse of chapter 2? It all sounds foolish to them and then going back to the first verse that we looked at the message of the cross is foolish what is the message of the cross hmm? what is this foolish message that Paul is writing about Paul himself answered that question in a few of his other letters he gives us some clues anyway look at what he wrote to a young pastor named Timothy, his sort of protege in the faith. This is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus 
came into the world to save sinners. Now that's the gospel right there. Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners. But it's something that people have to trust. It's something that people have to accept. And look at what the Hebrew writer wrote in chapter 11. Chapter 11 you might recognize if you're a Bible student as the hall of fame of faith. It is impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. What is the message of the cross? When Jesus died on the cross, he spread out his arms and was nailed there as if to say, God is telling you, world, trust me. That's the message of the cross. The message of the cross is trust me, not yourself. Trust yourself, that's religion. Or maybe it's philosophy, like Paul wrote about in the early verses. Maybe it's that. That's trusting yourself. But what God wants is for you to learn to trust him. That's the message of the cross. Jesus was nailed there and crucified to give us that simple message. Trust me. So I have a question. As we wrap things up this morning, I have a question for you. What more would it take to get you to trust God? No matter where we are, we've all established that we're all on a journey. None of us has arrived, regardless of what direction we're going. What more would it take, because you haven't arrived, to get you to trust God? You say, well, I do trust God. Absolutely, do you? 100%? You trust God with everything? I think we all have some growing to do. If we didn't have some growing to do, We'd already be home. So if we all have some growing to do, then what more would it take? Would it take a thorn in the flesh? Like it took Paul? Paul was no spiritual lightweight. I mean, he's a pretty big deal in Christian circles. And it took something very unpleasant and uncomfortable to teach him to trust God. Let me give you a last, last thing I want you to remember. This is what you need to take away from today. If you forget everything else that's been said, and of course I hope you don't, but if you forget everything else that's been said, this is what I want you to remember. It's your last fill in the blank. The bottom line is keep the main thing, the mind thing. Keep the main thing, the mind thing. What's the mind thing? And the very last phrase of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the last part of our text this morning, Paul wrote, we understand these things, these mysteries, the message of the cross that's been hidden from the world, this message, trust me, we understand this because we have the mind of Christ. What is the mind of Christ? Well, once again, Paul answers that question for us in another letter. It's a letter to another group of believers who are living in the city of Philippi. And here it is in chapter 2. You must have the same attitude, a lot of other translations say the same mind, that Christ Jesus had, the mind of Christ. you got to have the same one that he had. Though he was God, up there, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave he was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself to God. 
and he died a criminal's death on the cross. Can you see what I'm getting at here? You see the words that I've highlighted? God in heaven humbled himself over and over and over and over again. And that's the same mind that you and I are supposed to have. That same attitude of how can I serve you? What can I do to convince you to trust God more? Hmm? Do you need more faith this morning? Do you need more faith? Some of you may have been through marriage counseling or some other kind of counseling where you learned this art called active listening. Have you heard that phrase before, active listening? Where, where you, you learn to really tune in to what the other person's saying and sometimes you use a technique called reflection to make sure that they understand what you're talking about. Active listening is uh, what they call that. Well, I'd like to suggest that you and I need to learn to practice something called active humility. Do you need more faith in your life? Do you need to trust God more with what you have, by the way, which is what he's given you? Then practice active humility. Those acts of condescension that Jesus took, those weren't accidental. He did that on purpose. And he did that on purpose for me and for you. So we're going to do things a little bit differently this morning. We're going to take the invitation a little bit differently. What I would like for you to do is for everybody to take out the card, the connect card, or maybe you just want to take out your bulletin or a piece of paper, or you, you've got your notes. Maybe you want to write on the notes that you've taken. Roger's going to sing what we used to call in church circles a special. He's going to sing a song this morning, and it's not anything that we expect you to sing along with. And during the course of this song, what I would like you to do is actively think about what has been shared this morning and actively think about what steps of humility you need to take to have more faith in God. Talk to him and ask him what it is that he wants from you and write it down. Write down the question and then write down God's answer because it means something when you see it right there on the written page. It solidifies it. It makes it a little bit more solid. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to give you just a minute or two to write and then we're going to close up this morning.